Welcome to another Theology Pugcast, and we're glad to have you with us. We have a uh, great show in store for you today. In case you're wondering who I am, I am C.R. Wiley, and I am a pastor now living in Washington State. And that may be news to you if this is a, a, you know, a podcast you've listened to before and have associated me with Connecticut. Anyway, I'm living in Washington State now, even though at the moment I'm sitting in a booth in a brew pub kind of restaurant thingy here in Connecticut. So I'm still the in Connecticut. The first pugcaster to learn how to bi-locate. That's it. <laughs> That's me. That's me. I exist in two places at once. But uh, I've written some books, and hopefully by the time this show comes out, uh, my book on Tom Bombadil will be available to people who want to buy it. But enough about me. So, Glenn, tell us about your bearded and braided bearded self. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I do a few other things as well, though I don't braid my beard. My wife does that for me. That's right. Well, that's what a wife is for. Every, every dwarf needs a wife to braid his beard. But anyway, uh, Tom. Hey, look, I'm not that short. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have the Gimli look going, but I wish I did. Yeah, right. right, right. So, Tom, tell us about yourself. Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. Uh, I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And, uh, yeah, I don't have the beard that Glenn does, though. So I wrestle you, so with envy, so I have to... That's right. We're going to talk about Rene Girard today. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, But I'm going to start the topic today. Might yep, as well roll it's your right day. in. It's your day. I got a question. I'm not going to read the name of the person, but they'll be glad that I brought their question out there. Is they're kind of seeing a lot of the things we've been talking about for a long time take shape. And they sort of said, I'm just trying to make sense of how it is possible for the whole world to lose its mind at once. <laughs> or right, right. Um, some provisional thoughts. What is your understanding of how so many people can go so mad simultaneously? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think behind the question is, or another way of putting it is, is, is when we see a lot of the challenges that the, the church is facing currently, and, and maybe even our country or culture, why is it that so many people have jumped on board with stuff that is so diametrically opposed to reality as we've understood it right. for so long? Right. And how can people just run with it and cave to it in ways that if you had some purchase on reality in any deep sense of the word, you just wouldn't typically cave to or run with. Right, right. And um, it's, it's, I thought it was an excellent enough question to, to kind of just throw out and tie together some themes we've been doing for a long time. I'm not going to kind of, I'm not going to uh, dominate this with any particular work or insight. I, I thought it was a good question to kind of just throw out for, for us draw off of what we've done before, new insights, and then I'm going to tie in a little bit of it to a book I'm reading, Paul Griffith's excellent work called Lying, an Augustinian Theology of Duplicity. So, Well, I think that's a great thing to tie into this, but I, I want to bring out at least one thing that I, I hear in the question to make mm-hmm. sure that we, we deal with. Lying has been with us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, what I'm hearing this guy say is, uh, ask is, what's going on that brings us to this point where things kind of have gone crazy? In other words, We've been in a world where lying is something that, you know, is, you know, going on all the time. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, we can all remember, uh, you know, a past in which things didn't seem to be at the place it is now. They are now. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not the first time, even within the last 100 or 200 or 300 years, where we've gotten to this kind of, mm-hmm. I think, uh, nadir yeah. or zenith, however you want to put it, in terms of social unrest, crisis. You know, here we are sitting in a restaurant. It's not as though bombs are going off in the parking lot. It's not as though... Not yet. Yeah, but, that, but that's the point, not yet. I think there's a, there's a sort of uneasiness that we all feel that this question is getting at, and the uneasiness is we all know that taking this to another level in terms of violence would be really bad, even insane, Mm-hmm. But we see that it could happen. We suspect <laughs> that it could happen. Mm-hmm. Not just because of things that we see people doing who aren't like us, yeah. but feelings that we have ourselves mm-hmm. that we are trying to control 
that we don't want to get out of control. In other words, we could become what we are, you know, fearing. That's right. And, And I think there's with it this notion that, you know, not everyone, of course, there's generations that haven't haven't been tied to the experience of of previous social evils, but for people, and I imagine the guy in the audience who wrote this is, you know, of a similar, you know, generation to where, you know, how do we know when there's been so much world experience of what what follows from the kind of trends that we're seeing right that we're going to naively just start running with it and not passionately put a spoke in its wheel right i mean i think that's sort of the and how do you put the spoke spoke in the wheel wheel. yeah do you put the spoke in the wheel by striking first it doesn't seem to me to be the the way to go that's right and and, and that's right (laughs) (laughs) i i think a lot of this revolves around the idea that we no longer live in a shared world yeah. You know, we, we talked uh, in our last episode, we talked about a breakdown in metaphysics. I think we're also seeing now a, a breakdown in epistemology. Yeah, yeah. That people have looked at the fruit of modernity and decided that they didn't want a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, and who can blame them? You know, we've got nuclear weapons, we've got yeah. biological uh, warfare, we've got all kinds of horrors that have come from the application of science. Yeah, and and tied to that, I mean, and this is why I think sometimes discernment is rigorous for Christians at this point, because a lot of times Christians find themselves in desperation defending the Enlightenment <laughs> right, when they don't right. realize they were thrown to the very margins, even though they've been made the kind of symbolic um, straw man. And notice I didn't say straw person. Um, <laughs> straw man in this. Um, they've been made the straw man of sort of um, the what needs to be demonized as the central power of things. But actually Christianity was not the driving force of the Enlightenment. It was actually very, very marginalized and, and ultimately was going to be undermined by it. And, and so... What you have here is a lot of Christians just desperate to to save the phenomena of a world in order they knew, trying to kind of raise arms, if you will, to defend something that Christianity itself had had been criticizing much longer than critical theory or anything else. Yeah, this brings up something that I'd like to introduce at this point. I know you've got the theme of lying that you wanted to get into. We can... can we can tie, we tie can, it in. We, just, we can roll with just, it. We can just roll with run. It. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. reading uh, Rene Girard right yeah. now, and um, I'm reading the book uh, that people more or less say is the book that to read when it comes to getting int- in, introduced to his thought, and that is, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning, mm. which is, of course, a, a uh, reference to something that Jesus said when the 70 returned after, you know, uh, going, you know, two by two throughout. Uh, the region that surrounded them and uh, reporting back to Christ on what had occurred in terms of demons being cast out, you know, and the gospel being proclaimed, so forth. Anyway, um, what what Gerard does uh, is get at a spiritual reality that underlies uh, human societies, not just modern ones, but just human societies, period. And... Uh, and he begins his analysis with a, uh, a set of reflections on the Ten Commandments and the last commandment, not to covet. And um, he, he, his analysis is uh, essentially that, you know, you've got kind of a uh, chiastic structure with the Ten Commandments in the sense that, uh, you know, at either end, you know, you've got something tremendously important. You've got at the top, have no other gods, you know, and so forth. And then at the very bottom, addressing the subject of desire, which is the sort of wellspring for the sins against your brothers and, and sisters that are enumerated up right above them, right above that. So it's, you know, I, when I was, I remember reading the Ten Commandments when I was younger and thinking, oh, they just threw in that one to make it ten, you know. <laughs> it's, you know, what's the big deal about, you know, coveting, you know, what's the big deal about envy in general and so forth. Well, Um, What Girard gets at is that what you have in this uh, commandment, uh, this prohibition with regard to covening is really kind of the the very thing that that is the problem at a social level, societal level, that leads to all the other stuff that is is described there or or is condemned and prohibited. 
Now, uh, he gets into something, mimesis, which is a, something that's not a, an idea that he's uh, responsible for introducing. It's, it's something that many people, many thinkers have noted with regard to human nature. And by the way, it's a very biblical idea mm -hmm. in the sense that we are image bearers. Yeah. Question is, is uh, are we going to bear the image of the things that we make or are we going to make bear the image of the maker that made us? That's the difference between the, uh, you know, idolatry and true worship. Uh, if we worship the one true God, then we bear his image. That's right. right. We're his image bearers. Whereas if we worship the works of our hands, the things that we've made, we're idolaters. Yep. And in the process, you know, uh, we're distorted, are t we're twisted, yeah. and so forth. The loves we, get off-centered, the relations get... That's right. You know, now, now, all the social issues and problems start so to develop. So when uh, this image-bearing uh, goes awry... What do we end up looking at? We look at each other for one thing, and as we look at each other, we notice that, well, some people have more things than we have. Yeah. And uh, they've got more power, they've got more prestige, they've got more stuff, they've got more pleasure, they've got better looks, what have you. So, but they got more privilege. That's right, more privilege. So, so there's this sense uh, that we end up uh, sort of uh, orienting ourselves toward these people and through mimetic desire, we desire the things that they possess. And ironically, the, the, fact, the very fact that we, that we desire the things that they possess causes them to uh, hold on to them jealously. Um, and you know, you, you've probably witnessed this even with your own self, that maybe there's something that you, just, you possess that you just haven't thought about for years and you don't even care about all that much anymore, but somebody else expresses an interest in it, next thing you know, you're possessive. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's mine. Yeah. You, yeah. you can't have that. That's my thing. Yeah. And, uh, but and, and, this no, and, and sometimes it's, there's this notion, I mean, you, do, you don't, um, I mean, it, a lot of times you're just, you, you have certain endowments and you, you, you have certain abilities and gifts and you, you, just, you just exercise them. You don't think a whole lot more about them. Yeah. And yet they enter this world of conflict. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. You can't help but be either an object yeah. of envy yeah. or someone who is jealous for the things that you possess. So in yeah. other words, th this is the situation we find ourselves in. Now, what this leads to, according to... Uh, Gerard, and I think this is a tremendously biblical uh, insight, yeah. insight, is scandal. Yeah. So when we think about scandal on, and we think about the word scandal, um, the word scandal is used in a way in the New Testament that is not really um, in keeping with the, I think, conventional way or the uh, common, or sort of the way we think about it. So like when you say, there's been a scandal, yeah. usually what we, what we mean to say when we say there's been a scandal is, Something horrible happened. Probably had something to have to do with money or sex, and now it's out in the news, and everyone is scandalized. But that's not the uh, meaning of the word scandal or scandalon in the Greek. In the Greek, it means to trip stumble. up, stumble, yeah, to yes, trip over, to trip over. So, yeah. so uh, to scandalize somebody is to make them trip. Yeah. So, <laughs> what what you have with the New Testament insight is that a scandalizer is a person who causes other people to trip. Yeah. So why would you talk about somebody in a way that's derogatory? Well, you would talk about them in a way that's derogatory in order to make them trip yeah. so that you can overtake them hmm. and you can acquire the thing that hmm. they possess. Hmm. So in a society in which uh, scandals multiply, where you have more and more scandalous uh, behavior, meaning people at each other's throats, essentially. This is, we're talking about, you know, Cain and Abel stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when you lose sight of your brotherhood, when you lose sight, and this is why, and, and this is something that, that Gerard talks about and he talks about Jesus who says, you know, you should imitate me. Yeah, yeah. It's, an in, it's intended to subvert yeah. the, pr the, the, the process of imitating those that we desire to be like but have to harm in order to acquire what they possess. So a society can reach such a point of, of uh, destructive, uh, you know, uh, mimetic desire yeah. to, use, to use this term or envy or covetousness that it, it really does threaten to break down that you need the scapegoat yeah. someone that everyone can rally around yeah. hating 
yeah. in order to provide the kind of unity that you need to... And then this is where uh, Gerard talks about is Satan casting out Satan. Yeah, yeah. So he says, this is a situation in which uh, Satan wins either way you go. Yeah. And um, so anyway, that's the background. That's the backdrop. And what it helps to explain is insanity. The insanity that we're talking about at that's times right. like this. That's right. Where... Um, you know, it's been it's been observed by different people that uh, poor societies are not revolutionary societies. Yeah. Societies in which differences are uh, diminishing, yeah. where living conditions are rising yeah. and standards are rising, those are the those are the cultures in which you're more likely to experience revolutionary yeah. fervor. Yeah. So. You know, people who are just used to sort of you know, kind of getting by, just trying to survive. Yeah. They're not charging the barricades. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the children yeah. of those people yeah. whose standards of living have gone up. Yeah. Over, and, it, and it's created, you know, sort of great expectations, well, well, that's to, right. to use that phrase. That's right. right? And uh, mm-hmm. so anyway, but what, what the satisfying thing about this in terms of my reading of it is, for, for one thing, it helped me to... To see something I puzzled about for a long time, because I knew that's what the word scandal, scandal meant yeah. in Greek, Thank and I just couldn't I couldn't reconcile it to the way we use the word in English. Yeah. Uh, scandals are things, mm-hmm. of course, that we hear about, but uh, what causes what causes the, what causes a scandal uh, to spread? Yeah. Why why do we feed on this stuff? Why yeah. do we delight in yeah. seeing other people harmed or or come to not. Yeah. Uh, in other words, there's a kind of glee yeah. that, that we see at work here. And we say, ah, well, they finally got it, what they had coming to them. It's interestingly sinister, but I think this is something that, that sinister forces tap into. Um, I mean, it, you think about the way, I mean, thinking about our particular culture in particular, the way we see the current dynamic is you have very a very wealthy, elitist, global class dominating and pretty much could change the conditions of the world for the better for everyone underneath it. But what they do instead is they motivate the marginalized um, psychologically um, in particular and somewhat socioeconomically um, who they could have been helping for years but they haven't. But they, what they do is they create a straw man scapegoat, white supremacy, you know, the plumber who works hard all day but votes for Trump. I and mean, they make an evil demon out of this figure, and everyone runs and attacks that person rather than the actual game players that have the capacity. Well, there, I, there, there's, a, there's actually a way to explain that. And that, the, yeah, the explanation that, is. That's what I think this guy's question is on to, yeah. Yeah, the, the way to explain that is, is that uh, the uber elite are not threatened at all by the underclass. What they're threatened by is the middle class. That's right. The middle class is the party that uh, is the is the party that they don't want to sort of be reabsorbed into. Mm-hmm. But it, they, mm-hmm. and so and they don't want to identify with. You know, we see this with Caesar and the and the plebes against the patricians. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are many yeah. different examples historically well, that we can point. What's to. interesting, and this I think maybe taps into that guy's question is is why is it that the elites can tap into this Girard point? That you need to create a scapegoat and a demonized. But the thing is, I think Gerard can be applied the other way as well. Because I think that uh, what he's getting at is not so much uh, justice as as envy. Yeah. uh, And and that everyone is either. uh, Well, everyone uh, is trying to um, satisfy some kind of. Covetous sort of impulse, whether we're talking about the uber elites and their des- and their need to control everything, the middle class and yeah. their desire to rise. Yeah. Um, you know there are there are these different yeah. phenomena, and um, I don't have this all sort of uh, charted out, but I think that you know his insight uh, in terms of kind of this kind of being irrational, in other yeah. words, sort of defying uh, logic, reason even self-interest. In other words, we've all seen people who've even harmed themselves in order to harm another. You know, there's that, there's that great, I think, Yiddish story where um, a guy, uh, you know, envies his neighbor. And uh, an angel appears to him and says, 
uh, I will give you anything you ask for on one condition, <laughs> that your neighbor that you, that you hate, that you envy, gets twice as much. <laughs> and so the, uh, without hesitation, the envious man says, ah, make him blind in one eye, or make me blind in one eye. Make me blind in one eye so he can be blind in two eyes. He gets twice as much. Yeah. In other words, we, have a, an, yeah. we, have, we are willing to be harmed if we uh, believe that the one we envy will be harmed more. So yeah. when we think about riots or we think about social unrest or yeah. these different things, you know, we can talk about, you know, I remember the Rodney King riots in the uh, early 90s in Los Angeles. You remember those, right? And I remember... You know, the fact that many of the businesses and buildings that were burnt to the ground were owned by black people. So yeah. black rioters would burn down these buildings. Yeah. And I remember there was, I, there was this tearful yeah. uh, scene that was on national television on the news where there was this black entrepreneur who was weeping in the streets because his business had been burnt to the ground. And he just kept asking, why? Why? I'm one of you. Yeah. Why did you burn my business to the ground? Yeah. And, uh, well, for one thing, I don't imagine that the rioters were looking for, you know, mm -hmm. documentation on who owned what. It's just, these, it's it's here's an example of somebody that has something that I don't have, and I'm going to harm that person. But the very fact that they wouldn't think about something like that says something. Well, but, I mean, I think that was my, my point a little bit earlier, is that what you're, you're able to create, what you're able to create through even propaganda and other means is this which you're already tapping into a sort of resentment and then you exacerbate it by creating a, a kind of monster figure a, a straw man group and so they become the target of everything you envy and everything you hate and everything else there, there is this tapping into all of these raw fallen states if you will um, dispositions um, malformed loves idolatries and then there is this, this increasingly intensified cent centering of it on a group or a figure or a symbol that becomes the object that has to be removed in order for you to reach, you know, um, you know the, the sacrifice, the, 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 the lamb, that if, the, if you can just get rid of it, somehow you're going to reach... That that saving. Well, you know, point. I, I yeah. think I think evidently, you know, in our recent history, it's Trump for a certain group of people. Well, that's for yeah. certain for certain for certain groups of people, it was Trump. Yeah. Um, for other groups of people, it's another party. But that's I, the that's the that's the the point at which our society is is more kind of a, in a kind of a civil war state yeah. than in terms of a total revolutionary state. It is, but this I mean, Trump's a great a great kind of symbol point. I mean, what is it? about a kind of liberal enlightenment playboy from New York City that has become the, the you know, the central, you know, scapegoat, if you will, the one that you, they, I'm talking at the other angle. Sure, sure. The one they're latching on, the demonization of, of the symbol to represent everything reprehensible that people need to um, destroy when actually, here is a pit person who's completely just proved in his presidency how Im impotent someone who is elected to office actually is. He doesn't wield the power they all say he does. He right, has a right. symbolic power. Right. He doesn't. And what is it about this attractiveness to symbolic power that is unhinging right. those that actually have the real, real power? Right. Well, yeah, I think yeah. That, that, that you have, in that instance, jealousy. You know, sometimes yeah. people confuse jealousy and envy. Jealousy mm -hmm. uh, can be legitimate. You know, God is a jealous God, yeah. you know, uh, because he has a right to what to, is yeah, his, his, meaning his people and so forth, a jealous husband, a jealous wife. They're, you know, these people have, uh, have rights that are uh, being threatened. Envy, though, doesn't seem to be a thing that ever can be justified. Can you think of an instance when it can be justified? It might help if we define terms here. Okay. In the classic definitions in the seven deadly sins, pride and envy are flip sides of the same coin, basically. Mm -hmm. Pride means the desire, so the Latin word is superbia. Right. And you can see in the root there the idea that you are ahead of everybody. You are, you know, that's it. You, you're, you're number one. Mm -hmm. 
Envy is the opposite of that. Envy is where it's the desire to tear down or to destroy anyone who is in front of you. And that's what scandal is. Yeah. When we use the, the, the Greek, to scandalize is to take someone down. Now, it's always great when you have something that is really true that you can work with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> something no. that should be taken down. <laughs> but but, but here, here's another, another thing that we need to think about in the larger question of... Why is the world so crazy right now? How, why, why do we have this massive um, cultural or actually worldwide uh, psychosis? Yeah. What is, how, how would you define insanity? I think a reasonable definition of insanity would be something <laughs> along the lines of seeing the world uh, or believing things about the world that simply aren't true. Yeah. That do yeah. not in any way comport with reality. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the problem. And the with the breakdown of the Enlightenment consensus, with the yeah. breakdown of modernity in a lot of ways, and the rise of critical theory and so on as part of that, you there's a thing called standpoint theory that develops. And standpoint theory basically says that there is no objectivity in the world. There is no, there's no way of being objective. It, it, there may not even be an objective world out there. And that is an objectively true <laughs> viewpoint, anyway, for, for so, those in standpoint. Yes. So, so since you since you cannot get access to the to the world objectively, everything is a matter of your standpoint, matter of your viewpoint. We would say worldview, perhaps. Yes, sir. So everything about the world is filtered through your worldview. Now, the other yeah. part, the other assumption of this is that since there is nothing objective out there, one standpoint is basically as good as any other. Yeah. Which means that things like science, that's okay as one standpoint done typically by dead white males, which... Or living white males. Or living yeah. white males. Um, but that's just one standpoint yeah. and it's no more or less true than the standpoint of someone who rejects everything that science says. And this is, I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, <laughs> the same figure asked me why if I would go back in history and kill any figure I could, it would be Hegel. Um, Hegel was one of the big <laughs> instigators of this. He's not you, the... You, you, could, you, could, you could room with Schopenhauer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sadly, I'd probably get along with Schopenhauer a bit more than Hegel. Rousseau. Hegel, yeah, Rousseau. Rousseau. Well, yeah, definitely. But he, Hegel, I mean, again, I, I probably love Hegel. And hate him, one of those kind of figures. Um, but, but I mean, one of, this very thing, I mean, you know, back to Thales, right? Um, you don't have being, and then you don't have the law of identity between anything, um, which, which, what do I mean by that? that? That you can't locate anything's genuine identity. It's in flux. It's becoming. Right. Um, all reality's becoming. And so because of that, everything is fluid. And because everything is fluid, there is no point at which any one particular... Um, identity viewpoint has a capture on reality. It's all the standpoints of anyone who has consciousness because they are all manifestations of re, you know, reality trying to realize itself or God trying to realize itself. So, yeah, what do you have is, yeah, viewpoints, you know, historical perspectivalism is another word of putting right. it. You know, everything is, you know, okay, in this particular history, you understand it in its context, that's reality. But there isn't any truth there. You know, it's a, what was a Lessing's favorite thing. You know, you cannot derive from the particularities of history any universal notion of truth. That was his big thing, which hugely Kantian, but, but hugely indebted to this whole, this whole um, dynamic view uh, of reality, which I think ushered in with, with post-Enlightenment thinkers. And so, yes, you've created relativism, you've created... Um, perspectivalism, you've created this whole notion that my tribe, my narrative, my story is what's important, everything else. I mean, I, I see it in the seminaries, and now it's celebration of my cultural identity and its interpretation of, you know, the, the Bible rather than any right. connection you, you to You know, that's a tradition. very short step to everything that we yes. have rejected in evangelicalism That's right. for my li my lifetime anyway. And, and in classic, what I mean, lowercase Catholic Christianity, Catholic intellectual tradition, Orthodox Christianity, from the start rejected it. Right. We, we, we had this notion of, uh, here here's one, let's just go back to scripture, okay? Let's think of the Tower of Babel, right? 
we have the curse on humanity for, for coming together to develop a unified culture, vision, reason, whatever, to develop a tower to God, right? Confusing the language. Well, what you have in the book of Acts, I'm very convinced, is a reversal of that. Oh, sure. But do you note, and I always think this is very phenomenal, do you note that in, in Pentecost, tongues, everyone hears the same truth right. in their own language. Yes, that's it. That's right. So you have the same truth as a governing larger cultural linguistic context in which all the others are incorporated. We shouldn't reject. Right. But they are also centered in, grounded in the one that is shared. That is what I think is the original Catholic, lowercase Catholic, universal yeah. vision of the church. Right. And I think that's very different. So what I can say is, is that I don't need to pivot a group against, and I understand they're celebrating the fact that the Enlightenment crushed them out of the picture. Don't blame it on Christianity. Christianity did get did reinterpreted in the Enlightenment. Enlightenment Christianity is not historic Christianity. It may have found a form that did offer a genuine witness in it, but the Christianity far precedes the Enlightenment. Right. Sure. And, and so um, I think that Enlightenment synthesis and the attempt to make Christianity a part of that synthesis is, is something we, we, don't need to, we don't need to defend. We can show how Christianity had everything that was good of the Enlightenment and also everything, it, re it should have rejected everything that was bad about it because... It, it wasn't something that was, it, it grounded rationality and all those things that held a unity in the human subject rather than in the divine subject, which was, was the source of everything. Which, which in my mind raises a challenge or, mm -hmm. you know, um, so if Christianity capitulated uh, during the Enlightenment era to certain uh, standards of, you know, sort of proof mm -hmm. and so forth, um, if, that, if that was the case, are we seeing kind of the record again? Kind of, sort of like we're, at, we're on repeat, we're just doing it again, but now there's, you know, there's, in other words, our leading lights yeah, yeah. are actually people with their fingers to the wind. They're, t they're saying, okay, what's going on here? What do we need to accommodate? What do we need to uh, so, sort of, uh, you know, adapt ourselves to? Yeah. Uh, in, and, and, and I think one of the things that has been most disconcerting for many of the people I know who are conservative by disposition is how they feel betrayed by certain public intellectuals within Christianity yeah. who they thought were trustworthy and now they can tell are sort of wiggling in the wind trying to find a way to sort of make everybody happy to, to in, in other words they're kind of the me too crowd they're, they're like uh, hmm. Yeah, I mean, we Christians, we're there with you. We're, we're there with yeah. you on that one. We're there with you on that one. We're there with you yeah. on that one. Um, and what these people are at least wanting to see is some kind of principled stand that's willing to take a hit. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, yeah. is any, are any of these people really willing to take it on the chin? Yeah. And, and it, it, Glenn, you had a point. I mean, I think what you have going on is, is, is this, I think, this lack of discernment that is very characteristic. I guess this gets back to this guy's question. Um, why are those figures that symbolically have, you know, elite prestige within evangelicalism, for example, why is their antenna... Um, in, in, and, if, you know, their, their act kind of activity driven in such a direction that it goes completely with the flow of the mood of culture. And that and the, particularly, you know, the elites of culture. Right. That's right, the elites of culture who, you know, the driving engine, if you will, of, of kind of a lot of the... A I, lot of, <laughs> I think I've got part of an answer to this. Okay. In the early 20th century, the predecessors to the evangelicals who were known as fundamentalists. The words kind of shifted in meaning a bit over the decades. Yeah. But they basically lost out in the culture war at that point, yeah. and they said, well, well we're going to take all our marbles and go home. Yeah. And so they ended up being really not a significant part of American Christianity, except in their own subculture, for decades. Um, and as a matter of fact, even in the 1950s, which a lot of people seem to think of as a golden age of Christianity in America, it's a golden age of liberal Protestantism. Yeah, right. 
So what happens is in 1976, Time Magazine declares it the year of the evangelical because they've come out of the woodwork. And, you know, you've got, well, Billy Graham helped with a lot of this starting in the late 50s. Uh, it started moving evangelicalism into sort of public awareness. Then you get Jimmy Carter, a self-proclaimed evangelical <laughs> elected president. Uh, you have Jerry Falwell and the rise of the moral majority, yeah. all of these kinds of things. And suddenly it became, if not completely in, at least certainly acceptable culturally to be an evangelical. And they were taking yeah. increasingly prominent places in society. Yeah. yeah. And then the societal winds shifted. Yeah. And they were not willing to let go of the power and influence that they had. Yeah. And as a result, they started shifting with it. And one of the things I noticed in the, in the kind of seminary context is, is how, um, how, much of, how much followers they were. Um, I don't know if it's an episode of Providence or something else that made me not one of them. Um, but, I mean, having come through, through those angles and even the strong historicist perspectival vision, when, you know, they got at Duke and everything. I mean, I remember being at Oxford debating people, and I just remember for people, atheists, secularists, everything, um, even, even kind of liberal Christians and everything, I, I just re remember, although on one end they were good scholars in the fields with whatever they were dealing with, they were hugely ignorant metaphysically, ontologically, epistemologically. You could find some that could carry the game, but they really did not have a grasp, as mo most evangelicals don't, of really what's going on. Um, I, mean, I mean, I've been, literally, I'm not talking, you know, you know, Ohio State, it's probably a great school. I'm, I just pulled it out oh, of my head. Sure, sure. But I'm talking, I've been in the circles in Oxford and everything else, and it's the same thing. A lot of times, they just were under-informed but overly confident with their position and prestige of right. what's going on. Now, I'm not saying everyone. I mean, you, you carry a, a figure like um, Oliver Donovan. This is a person who substantively knew what was going on and was also in the know of people who were in the know. But he was not trying to be relevant. I mean, someone who writes The Desire of the Nations in Resurrection and Moral Order is not someone who is, you know, as he said, we can lose our confidence sometimes and sometimes we need to regain it in that context. But he promoted those works in a context of people that were antagonistic and would have laughed at him, even well, though he had the better argument. Yeah, and I think that this is where the long game comes into yeah. play. Um, I think that there is a, uh, you know, truth has legs. Yeah. In, in other words, it has a, a way of, of uh, prevailing but with time. So yeah. you may die and uh, only know posthumous success. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, but, but your point earlier, Tom, about um, we kind of... Uh, Discovering that the emperor has no clothes, if you yes. know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've experienced that in different settings. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it helps when you don't grow up in a Christian home in certain respects. I find a lot of uh, people who've grown up in evangelical homes have a kind of um, insecurity. Yeah. Um, they, they don't understand uh, the weaknesses of... They're, they're more or less impressed with the... With the, with the uh, with all of the pyrotechnics of yeah. popular, you know, culture and, and with status symbols and stuff like that, and uh, consequently, they don't really look into their own tradition f and, and and unearth its riches. They they instead uh, try to find ways to be a part of the action, and the action seems to be always somewhere else. Yeah, you know. But what happens when things are in decline is that. Uh, things speed up the closer you get to the drain. You know, you know there's kind of... <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we live in a society where a lot of the action that catches our attention is really evidence of the, the social decay. And uh, when you're trying to build something that has some, some future, that, that could... That has fu fu it's fucund, you know, it has, it has potential to be fruitful for generations. Well... In the beginning, it can be rather unimpressive. It can be small, like a mustard seed. It can be something that no one's going to pay any attention to at the moment. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so when we think about fundamentalism, why did fundamentalism uh, become evangelicalism, and how did evangelicalism become the main line without being the main line? Well, I think in part because the main line failed, and it failed yeah. spectacularly. Uh, it gave up Christian distinctives like yeah. nobody's business. 
and it was willing to accommodate itself to anything that was late and great. Yeah, and it, that's what I mean. It was this loss of confidence. Yeah, and, and now I see and, evangelicalism following the same Yeah, I, I did an article called Reinventing the Flat Tire once, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it was about precisely this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. I really do think that loss of confidence, which shouldn't be there, I think it's just because the bravado of the, you know, the rhetorical bravado of the other side and the intimidation of its... It, it, it's, you know, power complex. I mean, I think that's really it. The, it's the same thing we see with big tech and everything else, trying to intimidate someone. It's, I mean, that's really what it's been. I mean, if you get enough people institutionally to think you're an idiot if you hold things, you lose confidence and you kind of say, okay, well, let me find this corner Will you'll accept me. Yeah. Um, rather than be that, you know, against the grain figure to say, you know what, you're the idiots. I don't care if it's 100 or 200 or 300 of you. Till you answer this, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Well, this is one of the things yeah. about the evangelical elite that, that, that is distasteful to me. To me, they don't yeah. have the guts to go out and, and fight in that world for what they really want. That's right. And on the other hand, yeah. they don't have the guts to stand up for the world that they belong to. Yeah. So they try to find a middle ground. Yeah. They try to be as much of uh, the world as they can be yeah. and hold on to the, the sort of the minimal amount of what yeah. defines an evangelical as an evangelical and yeah. still be able to call themselves such. Yeah. So in my mind, just make up your minds. If you want to be, you know, if you want to be uh, an authority, you know, in, sec in the secular academy, just do it. Yeah. Now there is a way for you to do it, uh, you know. So, you know, by maybe making fun of your your ancestors for you know, uh, you know, forever, and that make that sort of you, you become the darling of the intellectual elite because you're the guy who tells tales, you know, <laughs> about you know those yahoos that you knew as a child. Uh, and, and there are a number of evangelicals who've taken that route. Um, yeah. You know, I knew, I knew Harvey Cox. Yeah. I have a suspicion. Now, Harvey was interesting. Harvey was, uh, I liked Harvey, yeah. uh, but he came out of the evangelical world, kind hmm. of turned his back on it. And um, he, uh, he became kind of like, um, well, he's, he's, not, he's not exactly the way, I, uh, the sort of person that I'm describing now. What I'm describing yeah. now is more, yeah. what's that guy that went to Moody and then went, became, he was a, Bible scholar. Hmm. Uh, he wrote, you know, Ehrman? Yes. Ehrman. Yeah. Ehrman, yeah. Yep. He's, he's, he's to me the, the, the epitome of what I'm describing. Yeah, yeah, he's making yeah. his living making fun of the people who made his life possible. Yeah. You know, that's basically. And likewise, off of very bad arguments and, very, and presuppositions that themselves are laughable if you're a very rational person. But anyway, but that, but we'll I, do that in another show. But, <laughs> but there also seems to be another way to kind of secure your place in the, in a sort of in the elite, and that is to be. Um, that guy who has influence in evangelicalism but who's, who has one foot in, in the Atlantic Monthly or the New York Times or just yeah. knows a few people. And, and the people who are in those publications or in, that, in those places don't want to make you look bad because they think that you're the way that the, that the people who are kind of behind you will be brought around or brought in yeah. to whatever they have in store for everybody. Yeah. So, and, you know, I could spend time naming and t describing, but I don't want to be guilty of the kind of mimesis that, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Gerard <laughs> describes, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, what we're dealing with is, is, a, is a kind of crisis of confidence yeah. uh, within evangelicalism. You know, uh, our friend Aaron Wren, uh, Aaron Wren has done a series of marvelous podcasts uh, under the... The, his new podcast, The Masculinist, on the history of conservatism. And one of the things he's noted in that series on conservatism is how uh, sort of sparse the influence of evangelicals has been in terms of intellectual conservatism. Most of the intellectuals in conservatism are Jewish or Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And knowing a few of those people myself, I can say he's right. <laughs> yeah. And, and what is it that they're attuned to? They, they actually go beyond the particularities of their Bible verse to actually drawing out the larger ramifications of their, their theological vision. Right. And that's and it, what they're it, able to do. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it seems to me, if I can jump in, yeah. that is, I think, the fatal flaw of evangelicalism. Yeah. It's our tendency to be 
so biblicist that we think you have to have an exact proof text for pretty much everything yeah, yeah. rather than taking the time to do the hard work of developing the implications of scripture across the board that take you way beyond just the letter of the text. Yeah, I, 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 that's right. And I, and I think, you know, I'm going to say it and I don't mind losing whoever's going to be offended by it, but the biblicism that most evangelicals hold to today is not what the Reformation was interested in. Amen. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. And I think, too, that some of the best uh, commentary I've come across yeah. uh, is coming from unexpected directions. So I just mentioned, yeah. you know, Rene Girard's book. Yeah. Um, he's given me some insight into yeah. uh, some texts in the New Testament that I think he's right about. And I think that, you know how it is, you know, when you when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think he does some things in his work that That's right. strikes yeah. me as yeah. being, yeah. you know, that. You know, he, yeah. he's trying to he's trying to answer every question with with just one answer. But there, yeah. are, but there are some things that I think he's right on the money about. Yeah. And then right now I'm reading Leon Cass's uh, yeah. commentary on Genesis. And, and I tell you what, I mean, there are things that are coming to the surface that I think he's, he's right about. And these are things that, and yeah. he's, it's, it's not as though he's kind of sui generis. He, he's, he's quoting rabbis from yeah. like the 12th century and, oh. uh, and even the first century, bringing out uh, sort of features of the stories that had been glossed over yeah. because of certain ways of uh, handling the texts that are popular within evangelical circles. And, and I think this is the right sense of tra Christian tradition, Christian intellectual history, is its commentary work. Uh, and that's what I think the reformers understood. That's what I think sometimes we got away from. When we think of tradition, we're thinking, oh, Catholics hold to... You know, St. Gregory Nazianzus is somebody who's infallible. No, first of all, they don't. But secondly, that's not what is being held. It's that St. Gregory was a reader of Scripture, and he's your brother in Christ. And so as such, you need to listen to him because in Christ, who is resurrected, they're not dead. They're that's still right. living voices. Good. And their living voice is teaching you something about yourself and about God that you don't know. It's not that they're infallible. It's just that they've been gifted as a teacher of the church to share with you something that they've read in Scripture that they're going to see that your gift doesn't have the capacity. Just like when you read, we read together, Glenn's going to see stuff I don't see you are. Yeah. But it's bigger than just us now. It's a whole living tradition that isn't infallible but it's a wisdom collection that we can read together. Okay, I may go with Nazianzus. I may have to say, you know what, I, don't, I can't go with him, but he taught me something. Well, that's, I think, the thing. Yeah. I think that there's a, a tendency that, uh, that people have in terms of the way they think about tradition to sort of acquiesce and just say, well, because yeah. he said it, it must be right. You know? That's right. You know, you know it, 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 just uh, true confessions here. Um, uh -oh. I, I, I grew up Catholic, and one of the main things that I got from the Catholic Church was a firm belief that the Bible was the Word of God. I'd always been taught that, and That's I always right. accepted that. I never read it, but yeah. I was, uh -huh. I, when I started reading it, I sort of became rather anti-Catholic. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. moved into evangelicalism pretty firmly. Right. And when I was in college, I didn't take... A, this is one of the examples of God's sense of humor. Mm. I didn't take a single church history course. <laughs> the professor of church history was an Eastern Orthodox guy, but he was a real believer. Instead, I thought what I really needed wasn't church history, it was just Bible. So I took all the Bible courses that were offered at Michigan State. They were taught by a man who described himself as, and I quote, a 19th century liberal existentialist with orthodox <laughs> tendencies. <laughs> but, but he was teaching yeah. Bible. Right. In and, other words, he's I, a modern evangelical. And, and, and you know, I knew, I knew I was going into the lion's den with this guy, but he, he was gracious and, you know, he... Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> You know, and I, I knew that there wasn't a lot that I was going to really benefit from from this, but I was going to take the Bible classes because that's you know that that's right. what a real Christian would do. Right, right. And of course, then I became a church historian. <laughs> that's right. But, that's right, right. But the way I defend church history now to people like I used to be, yeah, yeah. is asking the question: Do you think God speaks to you through the Bible? 
And they are always, oh yes, of course the God does. Do you think God has been doing this through the centuries? Then why do you want him to repeat himself? That's a good argument. That's right. I think one of the things that we're, we're getting at a little bit, though, is uh, how our personal stories can kind of prejudice us in certain ways. So, you know, I don't come, my, my, my you know, sort of family background is this weird thing. <laughs> and I've gotten into it a little bit, described it a little bit. But I don't have any evangelical hang-ups, if you know what I mean. I didn't, I, I wasn't raised in, a, in an evangelical home. Um, my, my folks were Episcopalians. Um, and the old, the old joke, you know, uh, William Sloan Coffin's old joke, you remember <laughs> William Sloan Coffin, you know, Riverside <laughs> Church in New York, he said, whether high or low, the status is always quo with the Episcopalian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, the high church, low church. We should, you know, just they, do, we should do a whole show on <laughs> Anglican jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's it. So that was my world. You know, my, my, my grandfather owned a mink farm, of all things. They, my, my grandparents looked like the, the howls on Gilligan's Island. Literally, I can show you a picture of them. But, you know, the... Uh, so I come out of this weird world. I'm in this kind of bohemian environment as a child. Beads and Buddhas all around me and incense and stuff like that. My parents got into all kinds of weird stuff, the Baha'is, Scientology, different things. So I, I, I come into, the, into a little uh, evangelical church, blue-collar church, and I'm converted out of this completely wacky, you know, sort of bohemian, sophisticated background. And the thing that attracted me to these blue-collar people was they were real. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were, these were genuine Norman Rockwell people. You know, these were the people that Norman Rockwell painted. You know, these were just salt-of-the-earth, likable folks with no pretension. And uh, was, so it was without any, any pretense that I get involved in, in this world, and, I, and, I, and I'm delighted that I've got something solid and people that I like. Now, sometimes it would frustrate me. You know, there they were, you know, attitudes, taste, different yeah. things that I was sort of put off by. You're like, Chris, shut down your Led Zeppelin. You, you're not allowed <laughs> not, to play not even, that. Not even that. It was, but, you know, but I, 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 you know, I could tell some stories. But, but there, there was a sense in which, you know, even though I, I was grateful to them, I could see that the horizons were limited for those folks and that yeah. I had seen some things that even as a child, uh, you know, I... I could, say, could see that they had not seen. Nevertheless, I thought they had something that I didn't have. I knew they had something I didn't have. And I've always felt um, somewhat uh, appalled at the, their children for failing to see what was valuable in their parents, if you know what I'm, what I'm getting at. So sometimes their children will put on airs of sophistication pine away for being sophisticated and sort of influential people themselves, turn their back on, on not just the, the, the sort of the, the, the stuff that could be and should be turned away from, but even the good stuff, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the old saying goes. And hmm. that, I think, is what's going on in evangelicalism. I don't think evangelicalism's legacy in America is its intellectual sort of deposit. I think it's, it's, uh, it's uh, lived uh, reality in local churches uh, where, where really uh, the grace of God has demonstrated itself in the salt of the earthness of the people. Yeah. I'm talking about blue collar people, you know, lower middle class folks, people who are just doing their best to raise their kids yeah. in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and uh, are honest and, and work hard. These are people I admire. And uh, sometimes their children uh, I don't admire so much. <laughs> well, and, and the, you know, I mean, and I guess the guy's question is, you know, kind of what, what has happened in such a way that so much of that world has just run with it. And there are a lot of, lot of answers to that. I mean, one is on the spiritual level, of course, you know, how much, how much of the current situation is the result of certain spiritual realities. Of course, they are there, you know, um, certain rejections of God, certain reject, you know, the consequences of that, the full vision of God, Christianity, its ethics, its vision, the embrace of alternatives have consequences. You set the cultivation conditions for people that no longer live in reality and and aim for untruth. So, 
So you have generations of that at this point. You have people very susceptible, this is my point with lying, that, that lying and truth become very hard to distinguish the difference of, and lying it almost becomes utilitarian. If it achieves a certain right. goal, um, if you can lie to the public, as we hear every day pretty much in most media and politics, it's okay as long as it achieves their aim of the goal of what they conceive of a just society, which is an ideal, not a truth. Um, and, and so, yeah, you've, you've, you've fertilized the ground, but... But I, I guess the real question he has there is, you know, why is Christianity's influence become so little rather than so strong? And, and I think those are the things you guys are, are, are kind of hitting to. Um, there's a lot of reasons, but I, I, I think one reason is the Christianity that we're, we're getting most of the time isn't the Christianity that is Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a soft version of it that's either therapeutic or, or, um, or, or kind of activist but has really ripped itself from this, the thick intellectual spiritual tradition that it is anchored in. And because of that, its, its exhibition is very manipulatable and malleable. Right. It's something that is disconnected from its reality core. And because of that, a new reality vision can come and hijack it. I mean, so, so what I'm hearing you say then, Tom, is that how can we expect the world to be in touch with reality when the church isn't in touch with it? Yes. And it, and it, and it detached from reality. And evangelicals were susceptible because they dislodged themselves, my argument. They had the, the theology of redemption. They ripped it from the, theology, the metaphysics of creation. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be my argument. And, and because of that, we're dealing with the Gnostic repercussions. And the, if, if, if the meta, Christian metaphysic of creation isn't governing it, then redemption is being read in light of a different view of nature and reality. Yeah, well, it's being let... Add to that, it's not just a, a detachment from creation. Yeah. It is a kind of eschatology that says it's all going to burn. Right, and right. doing anything in this world is rearranging decks on deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, that's right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is where I think uh, yeah. it's important for us to, 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 to affirm the future of the created order in the new creation. In other words, there's something that is that redeemed. continuity is mm -hmm. essential, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that Christ's resurrection isn't just a paradigm for our resurrection. I think it's a paradigm for the resurrection of the creation. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think that Paul agrees with you. Yeah. I mean, the Apostle That's right. Paul. <laughs> That's right. And we become that first fruits, and therefore the creation is longing for us to become right. they, they, It's carried along in our coattails. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and it is, a, it is a, you know, a, not transmogrified, but a, um, you know, a, a, you know the, the language of, of kind of glorification or theosis in the Eastern traditions, when you're dealing with a creation that sees itself in light of what Christ in the transfiguration Right. Uh, manifested. Well, let's, let's, let's bring this show to a close. Uh, is there anything that you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? I would... Uh, uh, this didn't go the direction I'd expected it to <laughs> right, go. Right. But, but what I would say is that I think that a, a significant part of the problem that the church is facing is the perennial problem in the church. It is that it becomes more like the world. Yeah, and I think that and the more the church becomes like the world, the more corrupt it becomes. And somehow we have bought into the idea that we need to be popular, we need to be like the culture, we need to not turn off people, um, all of those kinds of things, by taking a clear stand for truth. And the other part of this is that we have also forgotten our own tradition yeah. so that we think that the only way to address the questions mm -hmm. that the culture is asking is to buy into their answers. Right, right. So yeah, I, I, I think that both of these are just disastrous moves. Yeah. yeah, let me just sort of wrap up with my thoughts and then we'll let you give us the final word here, Tom, since it's your show. But my thought is, is that one of the ways that this is expressed practically within evangelicalism is with the church growth movement, particularly with with the sort of the emphasis on marketing. Mm -hmm. Because the idea is that somehow we can separate the packaging from what's packaged and we can wrap up the Christian sort of kerygma uh, in a way that's appealing to people who really, uh, you know, aren't shopping for Christian faith. That's right, <laughs> that's right. So, so the idea is that, you know, if we, if we you know, sort of package it with this, with this, with this uh, sort of progressivist gloss, well... You know, that is the current strategy that some people have mm. adopted. 
but if you go back 20 years in time, it was try to make the church look like you know, late night television and you end up with, you know, the guys out at uh, Willow Creek, you know, and stuff like that. You know, it's sort of like whatever is sort of like the hip at the moment. We decide, OK, yeah. this is this, this is what we're, the way we're going to dress things up. And, and and the idea is that it's just clothing. It's not really us. We're just putting this this show on, you know, but it, it has a way of shaping us in ways that we're not even, uh, uh, you know, sort of thinking about That's right. how you dress. Uh, does have a way of changing the way you think. You do know that right now they're playing sharp dressed man. <laughs> <laughs> so ZZ Top. We love Top. some ZZ Top. And, the, <laughs> and, yeah. and you've got the beard, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> and you recognized it. <laughs> I was, From the I was first compl- notes. <laughs> And I know I, I, when I came, when, I, when I, went, I actually came in, I had, had to I had to run to the loo, as they say in England, and, and they were playing Tuesdays Gone with the Wind by Leonard Skinner in Connecticut. So I thought this was a weird day indeed. That's it. That's um, it. So yeah, I was going to wrap up with. I mean, to one, one question is, you know, the short answer to why is the world mad? Because, well, of course, it's so severed now from from its attachment to any kind of realism or reality that it's very manipulatable. I mean, there's a spiritual side to that. I mean, we know scripturally, um, but, 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 you know, concomitant to, you know, or at least a corollary of it is the fact that, you know, you know, people are not centered in anything that is solid enough to be able to bear reality. And so therefore, they're able to be manipulated by that which appeals to what is foremost to people, their emotions, their experience, their psychology, those, those kind of, I think, psychological conditioning more than anything now. I mean, I really think that's, I was going with Kantian man, but I do think it's, for, you know, not maybe Freudian's a little outdated, but it's definitely the psychological condition, behavior, maybe a form of behaviorism. It, it drives the church and everything else in it. But yeah, definitely when it comes to the church, um, it's God-centered origins and ends have to be retrieved. Otherwise, um, we don't have anything. I mean, right. we have nothing. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, you know, behaviorism. I got me thinking of B.F. Skinner. Beyond Freedom and Dignity was his last yeah. major yeah. work. Think about that. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, we're beyond that now. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, we, we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. We appreciate it, especially when folks give us a good rating on some platform, whether it's iTunes or Anchor or whatever you listen to us on. And uh, we also appreciate all the folks, uh, and there are a number of them, who give to us uh, on a regular basis to help us uh, defray the costs of the show. So thank you for your gifts. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye-bye.